All right. If you would take your Bible and turn to First Corinthians, First Corinthians chapter twelve. Since this is the first Sunday of of a month, we don't have our Elevate Kids Church time. So I give my monthly reminder to parents that if you need to head out into the lobby at any point, it's no no distraction to me. I just want you to know how much fun it is for my family to be serving with and alongside you all to to be a part of a worship gathering this morning where you have baptism new members celebrating church plants that are happening, the choir singing, being able to gather around and study God's Word. Uh, so much fun to be able to do that together with you all, and we're just so thankful to, to be a part of Emmaus. And I uh, want you to feel comfortable to invite your friends and your families to be with us here, for you to be able to bring your kids and them to be a part of what's going on. Uh, one of mine broke one of the uh, chairs in the worship center this morning accidentally, so no worries this morning. All the pressure is uh, off. I love the fact that my kids want to be here, though. That means so much to me just as a dad, more so even than just being a pastor, just how much they love to be a part of what's happening here. And so so really thankful for that and thankful for what, uh, for what Jim is doing for us with, with missions. What we're going to do this morning is if you're a guest of ours, we're continuing a study of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 16. Uh, and in that study, we're focusing on the phrase one another. What does it mean for God to bring our lives together as a church, as believers in Jesus? And so we're going to take some time to study scripture together on the back of your bulletin that hopefully you got as you came in, there's some sermon notes. If you like a little structure and being able to follow along, you can use those notes. When the sermon is finished at the end, we sing a final song together. And during that song, if you need someone to pray for you, you'll have an opportunity to do that. If you just need to stand and sing with all your heart, you have a chance to do that. If that's a step too far, after the service, people will be available to talk to you. Just know that you have those opportunities, that we want to study God's word together give our hearts and minds to that. So we're going to begin in verse 14. We've already worked down through a good bit of chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 14 today. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so the focus this morning is very simple. That churches thrive when every member is needed and known. As you're trying to go home with some words in your mind, the words are needed and known. Churches thrive when that happens. You say, well, that doesn't sound like that radical of a concept. Well, it's true, but you have to brace it against other ways of doing church. A church in which really, at the core, everything is about who stands on stage. There's a form of Christianity that is, is very rampant and, and is very prominent, especially in, in North America. This celebrity sort of Christianity that church and the future of that church is really about who is on staff and who is on stage. 
Now, we take seriously what it means to be on staff and be on stage, but that is not what causes a church to thrive. A church doesn't thrive based on the amount of money it has, how nice its buildings are, how well its programs run, that there is more to it than that. Churches thrive when every member is needed and every member is known. What do we mean by that? What we mean by that is if you look back in verse 15 again, if you look back in verse 15, you're going to find in these verses that Paul is trying to counter two extremes. On one extreme is, I don't matter, I'm not needed there. On the other extreme is, I'm the greatest Christian of all time and I could run that church if they would just give me a chance to do so. He's going to deal with two sides of that extreme. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And what you have to understand here is in the background of this is the city of Corinth, and specifically the church at Corinth. And in this area, it seems that certain people were saying, I don't matter. And they were saying, I don't matter for mainly one of two reasons. Either I don't matter because of my economic standing. As you read through the book of 1 Corinthians, it seems that there was a lot of disparity in the church about economic and social standing. There was the in crowd who had money and fit into society, and there was the out crowd that did not have as much money and didn't really fit in. And this was causing these divisions in the church at Corinth. The other thing that was happening at Corinth, and we'll get into this in the next few weeks, is some of the members there had been empowered by the Spirit to have these very miraculous gifts. They were speaking in tongues, they were able to heal, they were able to prophesy, they had been given these gifts, and this other crew over here, they were helping, serving, giving, and they felt like lesser Christians, because look at these people over here, they have these gifts, and I just have these gifts over here. It is not hard to take that concept and transfer it into the 21st century church. That there are people, and you may be sitting here, and at the core you say, you know what? I'm really not needed here. If I was not here, this church would go on perfectly fine without me. I'm not valuable. I don't really bring anything of any worth to the table. I don't have money to give. I don't have a lot of talents to contribute. I don't know how to play the church game well the way all these other people play the church game well. I'm frankly just probably not needed. The danger of that, the danger of that is very quickly one of two things happens. Either you become bitter and discontent because of that reality. You say, you know what, I'm never going to fit in there. They really don't need me. I could just go on and no one cares. And pretty soon, this seed of bitterness starts to grow up and everybody becomes your enemy and nobody likes you and nobody wants you to be around and you start to feed yourselves these series of lies. The problem with lies is lies work in a vicious cycle. You tell one lie, which then leads you to believe another, which then leads you to be, believe another, and pretty soon, you don't matter, you're not valuable, nobody needs you around. Is that true? No, probably not, but you have completely convinced yourself that that, as tr that is true. I'm not an ear, they don't need me. <laughs> I'm not a hand, 
they don't need me, I'm not needed there. So either you become bitter, you stick around but you're bitter, or quickly you become disengaged. You say, I'm not needed there, so I'll just come when it works out for me. If I feel like things are going well, I'll come, otherwise I won't be around. What happens is we found that especially in contemporary church, attendance patterns have changed. And I hope you know my heart, I hope I've said this enough times from the stage, I want to be the last person that uses guilt to drive church attendance. That, that's not my, but, but hear me out on this. What has happened is we've gone from the greatest generation, the duty generation, the people that said, I'm going to show up at church. Uh, there was a time that Southern Baptists pushed this idea, three to thrive, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That was, the, that was your test of biblical faithfulness is doing that. People came, and then they got involved. What has happened, and you could rail against this you could get angry about this you could say this is a terrible thing but I'm not sure it's such a bad thing what has happened is we've found that attendance patterns are no longer I'm going to come because I'm supposed to be there and then they'll find me something what to do attendance doesn't drive engagement engagement now drives attendance because I'm engaged with what's happening there I want to come because somebody needs to see me there because I have something to bring to the table. And I know there's a part of that greatest generation, duty generation that would tell my people, you just need to show up because it's the right thing to do. I get that. I hear that. We probably need to hear that very well in my generation. But what I want you to see is engagement drives attendance now, which means that if you have to have all the church game figured out before you can find a way to serve, People in my generation are not coming around. But if you say, come along with me, and this is what Jim Lee, who does so well in missions, and why I'm so glad that he is involved with this, is because Jim will bring people in and say, come serve with me. Let me find you a place to get plugged in. And when people get plugged in, and they're serving and contributing, you don't have to guilt anybody to show up. Because they want to be there. They want to be worshiping with the people they're giving with. They want to be worshiping with the people they're serving alongside. They want to be worshiping because they're needed there. Not in a prideful sense, but in a sense that says, God has gifted me. I want to get involved. Verse 17. Verse 17 in your, uh, in your Bible or, or your phone if you're looking on there. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear... Where would be the sense of smell? We really do need one another. You are needed. There's one question you have to answer. God, how do you want to work in and through me to build up others and proclaim and display Jesus? If you have a feeling of, I'm really not needed there. I really don't bring much to the table. I'm not that valuable. I don't have much to contribute. Over and over and over Ask yourself the question, God, how do you want to work in and through me to build up others and proclaim and display Jesus? Because I guarantee you, he wants to do that, and he will do that. That's one side of the spectrum. Then Paul has to turn around, and he has to address the people who think that they don't need anyone else. I've got this under control. I can do it. If you want to know what this looks like, I was trying to think of a visual. What I've broken a lot of things this morning. Uh, that's the second thing that my, I don't know that I was directly involved in breaking that, but uh, I was trying to think, what does it look like when people say, I don't really need them? We don't need them, we've got this under control. I want you to see what this looks like in the church when this happens.
a triangle solo? Surprising. That's what Paul is talking about there. Verse 19. Verse 19. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts at one body. Therefore, verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now, Paul's not the first writer in the ancient world to use this body imagery. There was a writer in the 5th century uh, B.C. who put forward a story in which the head and the hands became very angry at the stomach because the stomach was nothing but a consumer. The stomach just always took and took and took and never contributed anything. And so finally the head and the hands just gave up and said, forget it. We are not feeding the stomach anymore. We do not need the stomach. All he does is take and take and take from us. So the head and the hands stopped feeding the stomach, and pretty soon what happened to the head and the hands? Stopped working. Shriveled up. That type of concept is very much what is happening here. The moment we say, I don't need them, I'm not going to be involved, you find out, oh, maybe I I really did need them. Maybe I really did need to be involved. Here's another thing. Watch something really subtle that Paul did in these verses. Look at 21 again. And if you're in your phone um, or, or looking at a hard copy, if you'll actually look back up in 15 really quick, it's not on the screen, but look in 15 really quick. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand. And then 16, the ear should say, because I'm not an eye. So the foot and the hand are compared, the ear and the eye are compared. Now jump down to 21 really quick. The eye cannot say to the hand. The head cannot say to the feet. Okay, here's what Paul has done. He's used some humor, and he's flipped around some language in a really interesting way. The first time around, he's dealing with people who don't feel needed, okay? And so parts of the body, the hand and the foot that are similar, are talking to one another. We're more likely, this is not always the case, but we're often more likely to feel jealous of someone that is somewhat similar to us. Because we look at them and say, oh yeah, yeah, I could probably do that. And so the head I mean, the, the foot and the hand, the eye and the ear. You get to 21, and the eye is speaking to whom? The eye is speaking to the hand. They're not even similar at all. They have no similarity. This is a situation where you say, I don't need you. You're so far from me. We have nothing in common. Therefore, I can go on by myself, and, and I'll be just fine. How do you overcome this? How do you, how do you deal with this? I love this quote. It says, whenever we begin to think about our own importance in the Christian church, the possibility of real Christian work is gone. What does this concept do? What does this concept do in the church? Here's a couple of things it does. The first is, it forces the staff to move from doing to equipping. If what we do as a church is only driven by what the staff is able to do, we're capped at that point. Rick Warren tells a great story about the history of Saddleback Church, that the turning point for them was when he stood up on a Sunday morning and said, guys, I'm going to do only what God has called and gifted me to do, and I'm going to set you free to be the people that God has created you to be. Go and do it. 
if we as a staff or we on stage say they're only worth the fact that they fill up a certain number of seats so that we can use our gifts, man, the church is going to shrivel up and it's going to be so weak. But if as a staff and people on the stage, we say my only goal is to be able to equip the people that God has placed here so they can be set free to do what God's called them to do, then the possibilities are practically limitless at that point. Those of you that are involved in management at work or you're involved in leadership at work, this, this theory of leadership is really catching on in the secular world. Uh, and, and never roll your eyes when something like this catches on in the secular world that's always been there in the Bible. Sometimes as Christians, we're like, oh yeah, it's always been there. Use that as a bridge to point somebody back to the Bible and say, hey, what we talked about in leadership meeting today at work, that's actually in the Bible. Don't, don't roll your eyes. Use that as a chance for a bridge. But it's becoming known as hero-making leadership. It's a school of leadership that says the way you serve as a good leader is not to look at people under you and say, how can they make me great? But your role as a leader is to look at people who work for you and say, how can I make them great? How can I make them thrive and flourish to be the people that God has gifted and created them to be? That's what we want to do as the church, not say, I don't need you, but how can I help you? Which means, which means, if you have any volunteer role at Emmaus, if you have any volunteer role, your main job is not to fill that role that you have. Your main job is to make disciples by bringing somebody alongside you to do what you're already doing. You're not filling that role in order to fill a role. That's a really poor excuse for doing church. You have a volunteer role, not to complete a task, but to bring other people around you that you can invest in, serve, come alongside, say, hey, do this with me. We're gonna grow in Christ together. Which means, as well, that we have to get really good at Emmaus at saying things like, I see God at work in your life, X. I see God doing this in your life. We also have to get really good at saying, I value you, I appreciate you, thank you for what you do in serving. And we say those things authentically because we need one another. Now what's at the base of all this? At the base of all this, and this is where it gets really good, is the body the church is made up according to God's authority and God's plan. Look, look up here on the screen. I'm going to uh, point you to a couple of verses. Verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Verse 18. As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. And then verse 24. God has so composed this idea of harmonious mixing. He's so composed the body. That verse 24, when it says composed, it's a word from the ancient world for, for an artist using various colors together, that go together. Um, when I dress, I'm primarily like the character in the Lego movie, uh, the Batman character, that I wear black and sometimes very dark shades of gray. Uh, uh, that's usually the way I approach colors, which embarrassingly enough is exactly what I wore this morning. But uh, the idea of mixing colors in wardrobe is a very scary thing to me, as you can imagine what my, my fashion sense. And I wear a lot of U-necks when it's supposed to be a V-neck, that type of thing. I really struggle in the, in the wardrobe category, which is where my wife has to step in and rescue me over and over again. But the idea here is that God has so composed the body. He has brought us together in exactly the right way so that the, the result is not an ugly brown, is this beautiful portrait of colors. 
which is an important point. When we talk about God bringing the body together, it's not mixing them together to create that color of Play-Doh that your kids sometimes create when they combine the Play-Doh together. It's the idea of a beautiful masterpiece. So we don't lose our individuality. We maintain it, but it's put out there the way that God wants it to be. I can't remember if this made it on your notes or not. I don't have a copy in front, but I want to lay out two, two options here. Maybe this is on there. Number one, when we downplay our place in the body, it means we are downplaying the goodness of God's plan. If you say, I don't matter, I'm not needed there, they can go on without me, you're not saying that about the church. You're saying about the God who created you and saved you. If we say, I don't matter, we're saying God's plan is not good, that he does not have good things for my life, which is completely not true. Overstating our place in the body means distrusting the wisdom of God's plan. If I say, I don't need them, what I'm really saying is God doesn't know what he's doing. If he would just leave it up to me, I could take care of everything much better than he does. Well, that's obviously a dangerous way to go. Your background, your Old Testament background for all of this is the book of Joshua that we were studying a few months ago. As God is distributing the land, he's saying, here is my good gift to you. I am allotting this good gift to you. I want you to use it. I want you to, to make the most of it. But you know what he does when he allots the land to the people in the Old Testament? He draws limits around how much land they are given. One of God's great gifts to the church is that every one of us has limits. There are things that we are able to do, there are things that we're called to do, and things that frankly we are just not very good at doing and we don't have the time to do it. When I find myself rushing around with not enough time to complete things, it might be that my time management was bad, or it equally might be that I have not trusted God's limits for my life. That I've said, God, if you would have given me a little bit more time, I could really get some things done for this church. And God is saying to me, I gave you plenty of time, and you're not trusting them to do what I've empowered them to do. God's limits in our lives are his good gift to remind us that we need everyone around us. We need the church. And what happens is when people are needed, then the second thing happens. They're known. When people are needed, then they're known. Look down in verse 22. We want everybody to be needed. We want everybody to be known. Verse 22. So on the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Now I realize, I realize, there's a place in attending a church where you may want to lay low for a while. You say, you know what, I'm coming from a situation, I just need to come in, duck in, lay low for a little bit. I, I frankly do not want people to really know me. I understand that. Complete respect for that. Don't let that feed into a habit of, I really don't want accountability. I really don't want anybody to care for me. I just want to come sit and watch. That begins to get you in a dangerous situation. I've been very transparent with you about the fact that I prefer to be by myself versus in a group. So I realize you also don't want everybody to know you. 
Everybody doesn't have to be everybody's best friend. And in a church the size of Emmaus, where we average somewhere around the 600 number, you're not going to know everybody. And so what happens is, because I don't know everybody, I'm not going to know anybody. Don't fall into that trap. It's easy to come in and say, because I'm not going to know everybody, I'm not going to know anybody. No, no, God will put you in situations where you are able to get to know people. You get to know their name, which is really hard. <laughs> but once you get to know their name, you get to know their story, and you find out, oh, wait, their, their story is kind of like me. Maybe God has put us together so we can encourage each other. You get to know their gifts. You say, hey, you're good at that. I, I heard there's an opportunity to get involved. You get to know people in such a way that you're able to begin to honor them. You're able to say, you know what? I can see why God has placed you here. Or I can see how God has been at work in your life. I honor you for that. I appreciate you. I value. Which leads to the next thing in verse 25. He gives greater honor to the parts that lacked it. Verse 25, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Not caring about people because of what you can get from them, but just caring about them because they deserve care as well. It's always heartbreaking as a pastor. It's always heartbreaking as a pastor when you find out that someone had a need that nobody knew about and you weren't able to be able to care for that person and meet that need. Oftentimes that happens just because nobody knew about the situation. Uh, nobody knew what was going on. As we get to know one another, we know about needs so that people are able to be cared for, that they say, you know what, I do know they care about me. Now, word of caution here, and, and I say this gently. If you come in at 1035 and you leave at 1144 and you don't talk about anything and you post something on Facebook and then you get mad at the church because they didn't know what was going on and didn't care for you, oh, we love you, care for you. In those situations, there's just not a whole lot you can do. That's why we have to be willing to say, no, I, I do want people to know what's going on in my life. Not everybody. Don't be an oversharer. You know, you, you, can, you can go too far with this, but you do need to know what's happening in people's lives so we're able to care for them, which leads to the next thing. Verse 26, verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. When we know what's going on in people's lives and something good happens, we're able to rejoice for them. When something bad happens, we're able to mourn with them, care for them, suffer alongside them. Be careful we don't get those flipped. <laughs> we don't rejoice when someone suffers, and we don't suffer when somebody else rejoices. That's the dangerous part to get into. We say, no, no, I know I can see that person hurting. I'm able to hurt with them because I know them. I care about them. I love them. Equally so, something good happened in that person's life. Man, I want to celebrate that. I want to be a part of what God is doing. Okay, how does that lead into diversity? We're just going to kind of skim over the, these last couple of points, but I want to talk about how that leads into this idea of diversity in the body. Look at verse 27. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Paul is working on two levels in verse 27. He's working on the level of the local church, that you're made a member of a local church, that you're needed and known there. But he's also working at the level of the universal church, that individual churches 
are part of the larger body of Christ, that are, we relate to one another, not, not only within the church, but local churches together. I have this theory that I've never really worked out to, to a very far degree, but here's my theory. Just like people in the local church are gifted in particular ways to minister together, I think in some way God gifts local churches in ways that are different from other local churches. So that in a community or in an area, what you find are churches that are distinct, that are unique, that are good at different things, so that the whole area is brought up together, that a rising tide lifts all the boats. Which is one of the things that I really love about the area that we're located in here in South Oklahoma City more, is because in knowing the other churches, and appreciating the other churches, and honoring the other churches, and respecting the other churches, and speaking well of one another, and knowing the pastors, what happens is it's not a competition, but it's, hey, how's God at work in your church? Let's celebrate that. One of the great tests of church life is how we respond when something good happens in another church. When you're scrolling through social media, and you see, wow, look at that church, look what they're doing, do you die a little bit inside? Do you suffer? Man, I wish that was really happening in my church. Or do you say, to God be the glory, that they are rejoicing. We're going to rejoice with them. Not every church is the same, but we care for one another the way that members of the body care for one another. Many of the problems that happen in church happen because we wish we had what another church had. Well, that's the same thing that happens inside the church where I wish I had what somebody else had. No, we have what God has given us, and we're going to be faithful with that. Look at verse 28 to see kind of how this works. We're going to wrap up because our, our, our time will run short here. Verse 28. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Say, whoa, I want time out. You just said we were all needed, and here's Paul giving first, second, third. It probably is not first, second, third in terms of importance. It's probably first, second, third in terms of establishment of the church. Apostles are sent out. A church is established. A prophet comes in, speaks God's word to them. Then teachers are established to pass on the word of God in that particular church. Not, not levels of, of authority or importance, but more of a chronology of how the church is established. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating. I love how Paul throws in helping and administrating right next to miracles and healings because what he's doing is he's reminding the Corinthians that the Spirit of God is at work in the mundane things of life just as much as he would be at work in some sort of miraculous event that takes place, that both of those are the work of God in the church. And then what does he put last? Various kinds of tons. Why does he do that? Because the Corinthians were elevating tons. They were saying those are the most important people. Well, Paul puts them last in his list here to say, no, they're probably not the most important people. Yes, it matters that God's at work there, but he's at work in all of you. Are all apostles, verse 29? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tons? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Higher seems to be a reference to impact. Desire those things that don't bring you praise, but impact others in the most powerful way. How do you do that? End of verse 31. 
I will show you a still more excellent way. Next Sunday morning, uh, Andy Harrison, who's coming to do our marriage conference on Saturday night, he's going to be preaching 1 Corinthians 13 for us to take us in through that process of what does it look like to pursue the way of love? What does it look like to live in that way? As we get ready to wrap up, let me point you to one final slide to wrap this up and serve as a uh, a caution. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's the caution. The caution is that someone could be a part of a church, want to be a part of Christianity because they want to be needed and they want to be known, but they're only needed and known by one another and they never meet the true Savior who can meet all their needs, and that's Christ. We live in a world, and Chris said this on that video earlier about Multiply Church, people are looking for a place to belong and they're looking for a place to serve. But what they ultimately need is they need to belong to the family of God and they need to serve the Son of God. And so as people come to be a part of Emmaus, we want this to be a place where they're needed, we want this to be a place where they're known, but ultimately, ultimately, we want to proclaim and display Jesus. That we're saying, as you know Christ, he will work in and through your life so that you are needed and known. In your life, this year, I pray that you would be needed and known at Emmaus or wherever church you're a part of. Flipping that over, this year, I hope you will help other people feel needed and known at Emmaus. That you will go out of your way to say, I see God at work in your life, I want to know your story, and I want together for us to be able to proclaim and display Jesus. Let's pray together, and we're going to sing a final psalm before we're dismissed. Father, thank you for this time together to look at this passage of Scripture. Uh, Such a famous passage about the body and how it's made up of many parts that you unify us in the name of Jesus, but you unify us in such a way that we don't lose our individuality, that you have gifted us uniquely, that we bring different things to the table. As a church, God, let us function in such a way that people are needed, not in a prideful way, not because they're trying to push themselves forward, not that way at all, but they're needed because you have gifted and empowered them. And that they're known, God, that we would know one another so we could honor one another, serve one another, care for one another. And as that happens, God, I truly believe that you would bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We live in a world where people are lonely, where people often feel invaluable, feel lost. And God, as they look to the church as a place to belong, a place to serve, what they would ultimately find is that in Christ alone, is where we find that hope. In Christ alone is where we find what it means to truly live. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.